welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, welcome to Church at the Well. We are in a series that we are calling Revolutionary, about the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus that in three years, and actually every year since then, turned the world upside down. We said, yeah, revolution is nothing short of a revolution. And Jesus himself is a revolutionary. And we said, this is actually a good thing. We don't need to be afraid of this revolution because of the beautiful results that it brings. The results, uh, there was a revolution of nonviolence. In fact, if you look through history, even people who wouldn't have considered themselves Christians or Jesus followers like um, Gandhi or Nelson Mandela, their uh, movement, uh, the change they were trying to bring, the revolution they were trying to bring in their respective countries was their, and their approach of nonviolence was motivated by Jesus. Gandhi, in fact, primarily through the life and teaching of Jesus, stayed committed to his revolution of nonviolence. But then, of course, Jesus followers since then, Martin Luther King Jr., as they, other people like him who sought to bring freedom and a kind of revolution, um, stuck to the nonviolent ways of Jesus because of the life and teaching and death of Jesus. Not just nonviolence, but reconciliation, peace, equality, healing. So many things that we'd say, yeah, we want that. In fact, if you were to try to describe maybe the revolution of Jesus in one word, you might use this word, love, right? Isn't Jesus' revolution about love? In fact, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how Jesus' invitation to love our enemies, to love the people around us, to serve them. Next week, we're going to be talking about how love was the new lens that Jesus gave us to actually understand how to live and what to do. But there's a danger, there's a challenge, I think, if we say, yeah, Jesus' revolution, it's a revolution of love. And hear me out, you might find yourself in one of these two places. On the one hand, some of us might have a, a mentality or an approach to Jesus that says, yeah, Jesus loves me. You know, he's, he's my BFF. He's in my corner. He's got my back. Jesus is there to carry me through all of life's trials. To, we sing songs about him moving mountains and helping us walk on water and all of that stuff. And many, much of that is true. And yet, if we have this idea that Jesus is in my corner, he's got my back, you know, all I need is him and he's for me, he's not against me, he doesn't criticize me, he's not a hater, you know, he helps me have confidence against all the people in the world who are against me or whatever, that we can actually suddenly move to this place that can lead to selfishness, where I want to live my life and Jesus is the magic additive that just makes life better. You know, like the stuff you put in water, like Mio or whatever. Yeah, Jesus makes life taste better. Jesus just, made, he's got my back. Anything I want to do, he's for me. He doesn't criticize me. He's with me. You know, he's going to help me actually achieve my goals and get to where I want to go. It can actually lead to a very selfish kind of understanding of our life and our relationship with Jesus. And not just selfishness, but even fragility. Because if Jesus has got my back and it's all about love and his grace and everything that he does for me, hey, I don't have any tolerance for people who criticize me. And I don't need to deal with criticism. I don't need to deal with haters. I don't need to deal with people who are against me. We can be fragile. We can, be, we can shy away from anything that sounds like criticism from the church or from our families or from our friends or from the world out there or from people who think differently than us. And a fragility that has to do with hardship. We don't have any tolerance for hardship. We say, no, Jesus, you're there to make my life better. You're there to remove all the obstacles. Why am I still stuck here? 
And so this kind of focus on Jesus has my back, it's all about love, and he's just for me, and, you know, for my life can lead us to this place of selfishness and fragility, which can very easily turn to anger and blame towards others or towards circumstances or towards God. But there's an equally dangerous but opposite reaction or problematic one, if I can say this, where we say, no, you can't. it's not just about love. Like, you have to live. You have to do what's right. Like there can be a concern with righteousness saying it isn't just about love. You have to live properly. It's about living rightly and living well and doing what God is calling you to do, doing the right thing. And of course, lots of, there's lots of that that's true and there's lots of that that sounds reasonable. And yet, if we have a mentality that says, hey, 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 it just can't be about love. It's also about how you live and what you do and the outer behavior of your life can very subtly, easily move to not selfishness, but self-righteousness. It's like, hey, like, I'm good. I'm good. Like, I, I, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, and I am doing the right thing. I am making good choices. I am making wise choices. I'm an upstanding person. I always choose the high road. I always do and say what's right. And you can see very easily that not only just moves from self-righteousness, but to judgmentalism. Why? Because now I'm very aware, not just about what I'm doing, but what others are not doing. And I believe, I can believe, well, revolution comes when people do what's right. The reason the world's a mess is because people are making bad choices and unwise choices and immoral choices, and they're not doing what's right. And if they would only live like me, even though we don't sometimes say that out loud, or maybe we do, right? And in fact, many people would say, oh, that's the place the church has occupied, or religion has occupied, or Christians have occupied, or pastors have occupied, that place of self-righteousness and judgmentalism. <laughs> the truth is, though, self-righteousness and judgmentalism isn't just found in the church, um, as tragic as that is, it's everywhere. In fact, we can look across the world and we see, well, we see selfishness and self-righteousness. We see fragility and we see judgmentalism. Thankfully, the revolution of Jesus is something different. It actually invites us out of, gives us a way out of selfishness and self-righteousness, fragility and judgmentalism. The interesting thing is Jesus had to deal with this very issue in his life and the people that he was teaching. As, and here's why. Because as Jesus, you follow the biographies of Jesus, one of the things, and we're working through the one uh, that Matthew wrote, you will see the crowds are constantly present and that as Jesus began to teach and do miracles and travel, he was attracting hordes of people. Hundreds and hundreds of people started to come to listen to him. And it wasn't just that he had crowds of people. He was teaching things about God's laws and saying things about what was right and what was God really asking of people that seemed to bring into this question, hey, does Jesus have any moral standards, <laughs> right? And the reason they asked that was Jesus was surrounded by a lot of people who didn't seem to have high moral standards themselves, who because of their choices or because of their past or because of the groups they were a part of, you know, they were maybe not the kind of people you'd normally expect to be around a religious or a righteous person. And so Jesus had to deal with this very issue of people that would be wanting to move to say, oh yeah, like don't worry about the laws. It's all about love and God's for me and God's supporting me. And there's other groups that would have been like, no, you can't just let go of law. Like you have to live a certain way. How you live matters. Look at, look at the lives of all of these people. And so Jesus is beginning to teach. And it's not just what he was saying. It wasn't just who he was talking to. It was even where he was teaching. 
He was in the streets. He was in people's houses. He was teaching out of fishing boats, by the seaside, in the marketplace, sometimes in the synagogue, but more often than not, outside of the holy places. And so this question of, does Jesus have moral standards? What does Jesus think of God's law and how we're supposed to live was coming up all the time. And in particular, as Jesus is teaching, there were two groups of people that were very interested in this question. On the one hand, you'll find, and you read in the biographies of Jesus, this phrase, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And these were people who were um, the ones who kept the law. The teachers of the law were the ones that not only interpreted, when they say the word law, they didn't just mean, you maybe have heard of this before, the Ten Commandments, but there were another over 600 laws that God had given them and some that they had added to interpret those laws and to say, okay, well, if you, me, you try to keep this law, that means you have to do this, 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 and this. And the teachers of the law were people who taught the law to people, interpreted it for people. And the Pharisees were a group of people, a very rare group of people, who were actually able to keep all of the laws. They were known as people who, who lived up to all of the 600 and something laws and standards that the Jewish people had in their faith and in their life. And so you have this group of people, and I know at sometimes even the gospel writers, and we can talk about them in ways as they're sort of the villains of Jesus. And certainly they were Jesus' opponents in many ways, but we can actually understand uh, they came by it honestly. The Pharisees were a group of people that they believed revolution came by hanging on to God's law and doing what was right. And they believed the longer they did what was right and the more people that did what was right, then God would come and save them. Then God would come and rescue them. They were actually a group of people who were willing to give up their lives for this. There was a period of time, what they call the intertestamental period, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when the Greek Empire was ruling before the Romans came in. So under Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire, there were there's moments, there's stories actually of Pharisees who were being forced to offer sacrifices to pagan gods, and they were willing to have their hands cut off instead of actually place a, a sacrifice on the altar to a pagan god. Like that's, they, some of them were willing to die. They shed their their own blood, to hang on to what was right, to not violate God's law, no matter how much pressure there was. So this was a group of people who saying, man, they had preserved, they're like, we preserved our society by hanging on to what's right. And that, and their mentality, now Jesus was beginning to say things and, and they were like, wait a second, like the stuff you're saying about the laws, the way you talk about it, in fact, all of these people you seem to be quite accepting of, we're worried. Are you just letting go of all of this law stuff? You don't care about it anymore? And the other group that was interested in was everybody else. Groups of people who, whose lifestyle and lifestyle choices, either in their past or their present, were what the religious group had labeled as sinners. People who, who had failed, who had sinned, who had broken God's laws. And because of that, were not worthy. Or people who had chosen professions like tax collectors or prostitutes who could never be considered good by God because they were constantly sinning. Or people who, by their profession, you had shepherds who worked on the Sabbath. They couldn't go to the temple, so they could never get clean at the temple. So they were constantly unclean, according to the law and the religious groups of people. So these were all the others who were listening to Jesus. And Jesus seemed to be teaching out where they were, where they worked, where they lived. And he was openly teaching to people who the rest of the world said, hey, the rest of the religious world said, you don't belong. And then there were others that Jesus was teaching to who had said, you know what, we can't live up to these. You Pharisees, you can live up to all these standards. Too many rules. We don't care. We don't want to live like that. That's not a revolution. We need, we need to get rid of that stuff. And we're just, they just lived apart from it. And yet all of these people are present in these conversations that Jesus is having 
with them. And the question is, Jesus, do you have any moral standards? What does God, you get this one group that's like, yeah, like, let's get rid of it. You know, Jesus, you seem to be for us. You're a friend. You welcome us. You eat with us, which was a sign, like we've said before, of hospitality, of friendship, of acceptance. Hey, you accept us just the way we are, right? So that we can live the life we want to live, right? You got my back. Jesus is my BFF. And then you got this other group. It's like, wait a second, you can't just live however you want to live. There's certain standards, right, Jesus? Right? And so Jesus addresses this issue very early on in his teaching. And I want you to listen to how he actually invites both groups to look at what he says in a completely different way. Let's listen. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In this passage, Jesus is dealing with this question, this issue of the law and how we're supposed to live and love and addressing all of these groups of people, not just then, but us now as we listen. And he says two really important things right off the top that set the stage and actually give us the context for how to hear everything he says after. He first right out, comes right out and says, hey, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Um, And this word law and prophets was a way of actually describing all of Israel's Old Testament scripture. So the laws that were given them, the Ten Commandments and the 630 laws and all of that stuff, the way they were supposed to live. And the prophets who were the voice of God. In those days, God didn't speak directly to people. He spoke just to certain individuals and they were the voice in the presence of God. So the law was God's instruction to them. This is how you're to live. And the prophets were God's voice saying, if they were straying from it, hey, you got to come back to it. This is what's got to change. They were God's living voice to him. So his word and his voice, the law and the prophets. And Jesus says this, hey, I didn't come to get rid of all of that. And so maybe the teachers of the law are like, okay, okay, you're not getting rid of it. He says, I have come to fulfill it. Fulfill it. What did he mean? I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, he was saying, look, those things were just signs that were pointing to a future day, but actually not just to a future day, to a future person, to me. I am now the completion or the fullness of God's instructions and God's voice, which said another way, I am the new law giver. I am the new law interpreter. I am the voice of God, which we know talking like that eventually got him killed. 
because the religious leaders were like, you cannot be, we are the law interpreters and only God is the law giver. How come, you cannot be the law giver and you can't be interpreting. Who are you? You're not even trained by us. We don't even authorize you to do this. And you're the voice of God. You're the fulfillment. You're the, the perfect new prophet. Like there's no way, but that's what Jesus says. I am this way. I am the new lawgiver, law interpreter, the new voice of God. To which the, you know, the people who were wanting to throw off the laws would have said, yeah, Jesus, stick it to those teachers of the law. Yeah. And then he said the next thing, yeah, but here's something else. Unless your righteousness or your standard of living surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you can't get into God's kingdom. To which they would have said, yeah, oh, oh, honey, start the car, we're out. <laughs> we're out of here. Unless your righteousness, your standard is greater, surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you can't get into God's kingdom. To which they would have said, what? Because remember, the Pharisees were the people who kept all of the laws, all 600 and something. And Jesus says, yeah, you got to do better than that. Now, on one level, we would think, what? what is he saying, right? He's saying, I'm the new lawgiver. You know, I've, all those things were pointing to me. Now I am the voice of God. And then he raises the standard to an impossible level. What was he saying? Well, again, that word surpasses actually is better translated fullness or fuller, richer, deeper. She's saying, listen, your righteousness or the way you live needs to be fuller and richer deep and deeper than the Pharisees. You need to have a fuller understanding of the law than they do. You need to have a richer understanding of the law than they do. Your life needs to have a deeper connection to God's ways than they do. To which all of them would have said, what? The Pharisees would have said, nobody has a richer, fuller, deeper uh, experience of God's law than we do. And the rest of the people were like, well, that's impossible now. Or how? Well, what did he mean? He goes on to actually give two really important examples. And he begins with this familiar phrase that we're seeing from Jesus early on in his teaching, which was so provocative, so loaded with meaning. He says, you've heard it said, but I say. This was this whole, I'm the new law giver. You've heard it said, or your law says this. And when he says, you've heard it said, remember, who is he talking about? Mostly God. He cites two commandments that were in the Ten Commandments. Who said the Ten Commandments? Who gave them? God gave them to the people. And Jesus is saying, hey, you've heard it said, God said, but I say. It was his very bold way of saying, I know God said this, but I am reinterpreting or I'm giving new laws. I'm giving new, fuller, richer, deeper understanding of what God said. And he goes on to give two examples of what he means when he says our righteousness has to be better than the most righteous people in the world. What was he talking about? And he gives two examples. He says, you've heard it said, or God said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with someone, with a brother or sister, and calls them, he says, Raka, or says, you idiot, who curses their brother or sister, who gets angry at them with a kind of hateful sort of vengeance, he says, you're as guilty as a murderer. You've heard it said, do not murder. Oh yeah, you've kept the law. You don't murder people. 
It's not hard to tell whether you're keeping the law if all it is is about murder, right? You can usually tell if you're shooting someone or stabbing somebody. It's not like, wait, oh no, what am I doing? Jesus says, no, no, but there's stuff going on in the inside of you, your words, your thoughts, your feelings, your heart, that it can be just as murderous as a physical act of violence. See, fuller, richer, deeper. Then he says, what about adultery? That's not hard to tell if you're keeping the law or not. Oh no, who, who are you? You're in bed with someone. It's like, that doesn't happen, right? You don't, okay, adultery. Don't sleep with anyone who is not your husband or wife. Jesus says, oh yeah, but have you ever thought about sleeping with someone who's not your husband or wife? Have you ever looked at someone's body and kind of imagined it, fantasized about it, even for a moment? He says, yeah, that's not on the outside. That's on the inside, your thoughts, your heart. But it's just as deadly. It's just as wrong. It's just as violating as adultery. He says that's lust. And lust isn't just about, isn't actually sexual desire. Lust is about a desire to use someone for your own enjoyment. He says, yeah, and that's what it does. When you look at someone's body, when you talk about someone's body, when you think about someone else who does not belong to, who you are not in a life, marriage, commitment, husband and wife to, that is just like adultery. What was Jesus doing with the law? They would have actually grouped them all, all these two groups of people, the people who wanted to say, yeah, you have to live a certain way and here's the standard and we're keeping it and you're not, of these people saying, oh, that's too much. Can't Jesus just back what I want to do? Can I just live my life with freedom? Jesus gathers them all in and he takes the attention away from uh, the outside and other people towards the inside and ourselves. He says, right living or what's going on on the inside of you matters even more than the outward behavior. Or said this way, all of the outward behavior is connected to an inside. And for those of you that look at your life and say, I've kept all the law, I'm doing all the right things, and look at how I'm living, look at all those other people. He says, yeah, but there's stuff going on inside your heart that's just as destructive as murder, it, just as wrong as adultery. You have a, an anger and a bitterness towards other people in your thoughts and in your words that's just like putting a knife in them. And you have a way of viewing other people that uses them and you see other people as existing for your pleasure or your benefit and how you can use other people to get your gain that's just as um, despicable as adultery, as taking someone else's spouse. He said, that's all going on in your heart. So don't just look at the outside and say, oh yeah, I'm doing well. And those of you that want to say, hey, Jesus, you know, let's just throw off the laws saying, no, there's far more stuff going on on the inside of you that is not okay, that if I really love you, I'm not just going to go there, there. I'm for you. I'm not against you. Your heart, the center of you, your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, desires is full of sin. It needs to be dealt with. It was basically his way of saying, hey, all saints are sinners. All saints are sinners. It's kind of bad news for everyone. <laughs> they were all in the same boat. And there's a temptation in them then and us now to reject this idea. Right? For those that say, no, hey, like I, I live well. Like I, my behavior is good. We want to reject the idea that someone's telling us, no, you're not okay. Your life looks good on the outside, but the inside, it's a mess. We don't want to hear that. And those of us that just want to hear support and Jesus loves me and he backs me whatever I want to do, we don't want to know that there's stuff on the inside of us that isn't right, that if he really loves us, he's going to actually have to deal with. But the reason not to reject Jesus' attention that he takes away from the outward behavior 
to the inside of us, away from others to us and the center of who we are. It is actually the cure for all of the selfishness and self-righteousness, all of the fragility and the judgmentalism that ails us. It is actually the cure. Why? Because for those of us that want to say, oh no, I don't want to, you know, I don't want, I just want Jesus to back me in my life and I don't want to live up to some standard and I don't want to think about that because it makes me feel bad about myself. The truth is the reason we are so selfish, the reason we are self-centered, the reason we are fragile is because we know deep down we have a pervasive insecurity. Insecurity is actually the dominant mark of the human race of what it means to be human. We are afraid that the worst things about us are actually true. We don't want to hear criticism. We don't want to know there's a standard because why inside we are all afraid of failing. We are all afraid of being found out. We are all afraid of the worst things about us being true. And yet in Jesus, we have someone who knows us exactly as we are, who sees right into the heart of us and loves us. In Jesus, we actually see someone who sets the bar impossibly high for us and then has grace for us every time we fall short of it. <laughs> right? Jesus sets the bar far beyond what we think is the standard of possibility. And every time we fall short of it, he's gracious. He's loving. He's to say the bar's much higher than what you look like and how you act. It's what's going on in the inside of you. And I know every part of you and I am not rejecting you. Right? He has grace for us every time we fall. That actually is a cure as it invites us out of our selfishness, invites us out of our fragility, invites us out of our insecurity into a place of, of, of loving acceptance from Jesus who knows just how black our hearts can be sometimes, just how perverse or angry our thoughts can be sometimes, just how good we are at putting up an image out there when inside not is all well. Jesus putting his finger on that actually is the cure. And likewise, it is the cure for those of us that tempt, are tempted towards judgmentalism and criticism of others and self-righteousness where we are living well and we look down on others. Jesus putting his finger on the inside and say, hey, yeah, your life might look good on the outside, but you know you have motivations, you have thoughts, you have desires that are just as destructive as murder, that are just as um, despicable as adultery, that are just as selfish and self-righteous. And even pride that comes from living well. For those of us in that place, Jesus raises the standard but invites us to be gracious to everyone who falls short of it. Why? Because we know we fall short too. See, lowering the standard to nothing does not actually get rid of pride and arrogance and insecurity and selfishness and all of that. And holding up a bar and saying, this is how you're to live and expecting other people to just meet it, meet it, meet it, doesn't actually change the world either. No revolution comes by that. All that comes from that is judgmentalism, criticism, blame, and harshness towards others. Jesus, in putting his finger on what's really going on, on the inside of us, invites us into a whole new way of understanding ourselves and relating to others. Psychologist and author David Benner says it this way. He says, The self that God persistently loves is not my prettied up pretend self, but my actual self. Let me read that again. The self that God persistently loves is not my prettied up pretend self, but my actual self, the real me. But master of delusion that I am, I have trouble penetrating the web of self-deceptions and knowing this real me. I continually confuse it with some ideal self 
that I wish I were. <laughs> See, friends, Jesus putting his finger on the heart and the stuff that lies on the inside of us is actually a way that invites us out of these webs of self-deceptions, lying to ourselves about how good we are, or how we don't need to measure up to any standard. We can just be ourselves and that's okay. And you do you. Those are all self-deceptions. And Jesus actually invites us and says, no, I love the real you. And his way of letting himself put his finger on us, taking the attention away from what other people are doing and how they live and onto what we are doing and how we will live, away from our outward behavior and into the matters of the heart and the thought and desires and motivations is actually a way of breaking the lies about ourselves, breaking self-deception, inviting us into a beautiful new reality. But you see, Jesus didn't just teach about this. When he said, I came to fulfill the law, do you know how he ultimately fulfilled it? <laughs> By Jesus who lived perfectly on the outside and had no sin on the inside, dying for us on a cross. This is the scriptures say he chose to do. He didn't just teach us about the fact that we needed forgiveness and grace on the inside that we needed redemption far deeper, far richer, far, far fuller than we thought, that the law and the standard was way higher. He who met the standard completely went, and the scriptures say, died in our place so that we would not have to. Paid for falling short of the standard so that we did not have to. This is how ultimately Jesus fulfilled his standard. He raises the bar and yet gave himself completely to offer all of us grace and forgiveness. Friends, we do not know a love like this. There is no other God in the world like this. And so I just want to give us a moment before we talk about, okay, what does that mean for us as we live our lives? To just stop and reflect, and the band is going to sing a song for us that's called Run to the Father. And it's just this invitation to say, hey, because God knows everything about us, we don't need to run away in shame. We don't need to resist it saying, I'm fine, I'm fine. We can run to him and receive grace and forgiveness. So let's listen or sing together. Oh! 
allow Jesus to be honest with us, to in a sense raise this standard of what it really means to be right and good and pure on the inside. But we let him do it because we know he loved us. He died for us. He put himself in our place. Confession becomes a way of life. Confession. See, we don't need to hide from confession, afraid to admit that the worst things about us are actually true, afraid that we will be rejected if people really knew what we were like. We don't have to run from confession before God because he knows us and he offers us forgiveness. We can run to him. So confession is this lovely, beautiful, delightful invitation to be ourselves. 
in his presence. Likewise, we don't have to resist it saying, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. We know Jesus is saying, no, you're not fine. Your outward behavior may look fine, but inside of you, what comes out of your mouth sometimes, it's not okay. We don't have to reject that idea. Confession becomes this beautiful way of life. And so we want to take a few moments um, just near the end of our time together. And I want to invite you into a reflection of confession just over the last 24 hours. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And I want you to just think, you may not um, have an answer for every one of these questions, but maybe one of them just invites you to reflect even just over the last 24 hours, where are the ways that I have fallen short of what it means to be right and pure on the inside, to have a heart that is like God's. And so just listen as these questions go through and take uh, the moments and the time you need to reflect. In the last 24 hours, what harsh words or thoughts have I spoken or thought to or about others? What harshness has come out of my mouth or been in my thoughts? In what ways have I treated people as objects to be used for my benefit? You know, if that's what lust is ultimately, whether sexually or any other way, to treat someone as an object in the way we think about them, in the way we look at them, in the way we talk about them, or to just see them as someone who exists for my benefit and my gain. In what ways have I treated people like that? In the last 24 hours, what opportunities to serve or help did I ignore or just flat out reject? What things did I turn a blind eye to or just say, no, I'm not doing that. I don't want to help. In the last 24 hours, have I criticized or gossiped about someone to others. In the last 24 hours, in what ways have I avoided or ignored God's presence or God's will? You know, maybe we could all write something down for all of them, but, but maybe there's just one in particular that you know. Just one thing that you know is really important. It kind of landed with you while you were thinking about it. It's got some oomph to it. Just write a, uh, or say a prayer quietly under your breath or if you want to write it out. If you're alone, you could say it out loud. A prayer of confession to Jesus, asking him to forgive you. And then as I was writing this and praying, I just felt there's probably four more questions I need to ask you. You don't need to reflect on these for a long, but they they should stay with you maybe. 
as you go forward, what have you not told your spouse that you need to? Anything you've been keeping from them, you've been hiding from them. Maybe it's for a short time, maybe it's for a long time. What have you not told a friend that you need to? Something you've done or said. What have you not told your mom and dad that maybe it's time to tell them to come clean? Or what is something in your life you've never told anyone that you're hiding it? You don't want anyone to know. But it's actually eating you up. If there's nobody who knows that, maybe that's something that you need to do. <laughs> the reality is none of us want to do this, <laughs> but we all need it. All saints are sinners. We don't want to do it, but we need it. But why is this revolutionary? Friends, confession can have life-changing effect on yourself and your relationships. Confession can have a life-changing impact on how you view yourself and your relationships. A regular practice of confession can have a life-changing impact on your marriage. I know a few guys that I've talked to over the years as I, you know, in my own marriage started to realize, hey, if I ever looked at anything I shouldn't be looking at or uh, lusting in some way that was not appropriate or whatever, I needed to confess that to my wife. And that actually brought a lot of healing and transformation in our relationship. And I'll talk to a lot of guys and they'll say stuff, oh, you know, whatever they've seen or pornography or something. And I'll say, well, have you talked to your spouse? But have you talked to your wife? And they're like, no, we couldn't. And so often many of them will come back and say, I can't believe it. It changed. We had a life or a marriage altering conversation. It's so good. It's led us into a totally new place. It can dramatically change how you lead if you're someone who regularly confesses. <laughs> Um, to God and to those that you lead that maybe you hurt intentionally or unintentionally. It can radically change your leadership and your influence. It can change your interpersonal relationships with others, even in this church, even in this family, even in your family, extended family. It can start a new pattern of the way you and your extended family interact together if you are willing to confess. Confession is a revolutionary act. It turns the world upside down, starting with something so small and leading to total transformation. This is the promise that Jesus offers us <laughs> in his revolutionary way of seeing the world. We're going to close the service now with a song that for me often leads me into confession or I love to sing after a time of confession. It just reminds me of how incredible the love of Christ is for me. And so I'd invite you to just delight and just, even if you've never heard it before, even if you have, let these words just wash over you as true today. I've been strong and I've been broken within a moment. I've been faithful and I've been reckless at every bend I've held everything together and watched a shatter I've stood tall and I have crumbled in the same breath 
But somehow This kind of love is who you are It's a grace I can never add up To be somebody you still want But somehow You love me as you found